Sojourner True, thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, President Biden's foreign policy thus far have liberals and progressives worried. His team, they say, is filled with war hawks, while his man at the Pentagon has ties with the U.S. defense industry. What difference, if any, or similarities will there be with Biden and Trump's foreign policy? And on the national front, President Biden's executive orders, hailed by some roundly criticized by others, can his strategy of undoing Trump policies via executive orders hold? The challenges of moving forward President Biden's new stimulus bill and the role of the filibuster that GOP minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, thus far has managed to maintain. And Nancy Pelosi is growing worried about what she calls the enemy within as elected officials are threatened and the U.S. issues a warning to the nation of the threat of internal terrorists. We live in, our panelists are uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, Laura Carlson, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. We will not have our news headlines today. So that gives us a bit more time to go uh, directly uh, to welcoming our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, who is the director of the America's Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, uh, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura will be joining us in just a moment. We'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, who is a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th uh, Century. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. 
right? And I understand uh, Laura Carlson. I did your intro already, Laura. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty. We're actually going to start off today. Um, we're going to flip it a little bit and start and go straight to uh, the foreign policy uh, discussion. And since Joe Biden took office on January 20th, his administration has paused or put under review an array of Trump's foreign policies. Um, before I say a bit more about that, let us just go to a couple of short clips of what Biden has to say about his cabinet uh, nominees and also what a Biden pres presidency might mean for U.S.-China relations. Today, I'm pleased to announce nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it, once again sit at the head of the table, ready to confront our adversaries and not reject our allies ready to stand up for our values. In fact, in calls from world leaders that I've had, about 18 of them or 20 so far, I'm not sure the exact number, in the weeks since we won the election, I've been struck by how much they're looking forward to the United States reasserting its historic role as a global leader, both in the Pacific as well as the Atlantic, all across the world. The team meets this moment, this team behind me, they embody my core beliefs that America is strongest when it works with its allies. Collectively, this team has secured some of the most defining national security and diplomatic achievements in recent memory, made possible through decades of experience working with our partners. That's how we truly keep America safe, without engaging in needless military conflicts and our adversaries in check and terrorists at bay. And that's how we counter terrorism and extremism, control this pandemic and future ones, deal with the climate crisis, nuclear proliferation, cyber threats and emerging technologies that spread authoritarianism, and so much more. Biden is no stranger to China. As a senator and vice president, he traveled repeatedly there, negotiating face to face with Xi. But as a presidential candidate, Biden adopted a hard line. What I'd make China do is play by the international rules. We need to be having the rest of our friends with us saying to China, these are the rules. You play by them or you're going to pay the price for not paying by them economically. Chinese state media is warning relations are unlikely to improve under President Biden, acknowledging that both Democrats and Republicans share suspicion of China. But the state-run Global Times also writes... Biden is expected to appoint more professional officials to his diplomatic team, and so it will be possible for U.S.-China tensions to take a brief time out. China expert Willie Lam says Chinese officials are wary of Biden's multilateral approach to diplomacy. They are also very nervous about uh, the fact that Biden uh, will be much more efficient and uh, successful in putting up a united front uh, against China by working together with uh, America's traditional allies in Europe and Asia. At the very least, Biden may bring a change in tone to the simmering rivalry between these two nations. 
All righty. So um, President Biden, he has paused or put under review some of Trump's foreign policies. Um, his cabinet placed temporary holds on major arms sales to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. We'll be discussing with our panelists the implications of that. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken assumed office on Tuesday, January 26th. Now, on his first full day, on Wednesday, January 27th, Blinken said Biden's administration has initiated a comprehensive review of the U.S. relationship with Russia and is examining details of a U.S.-Taliban peace deal signed nearly a year ago under the Trump administration. Blinken also said the new government is willing to return to commitments under the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, which Trump withdrew from, but only if Iran returned turns to full compliance with the accord, so the sanctions basically will stay in place. Hinting at his disagreements with Trump's approach, Blinken said the world is watching how the United States pursues foreign policy after Trump's America First doctrine, which he said alienated many U.S. allies. On Wednesday, Blinken also said, quote, America's leadership is needed around the world and we will provide it, end of quote. While some have praised this, others on the progressive anti-war left are concerned about U.S. wars um, against countries around the world. And also another problem area. Uh, President Biden's defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, referred to China as, quote, our most challenging, our most significant challenge going forward. This comes after years of U.S. support for Taiwan under Donald Trump, who approved the sale of sophisticated military hardware to Taiwan, including F-16 fighter jets, advanced missiles, and main battle tanks while sending high-level envoys to the island. Of course, this has greatly upset China, and now Joe Biden has to deal with increased tensions with China over U.S. involvement in the region. And Lloyd Austin, by the way, he has uh, strong ties with the U.S. defense industry. Um, the Biden administration also pausing weapons sales to Gulf ally Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates made under the Trump administration. Now, under uh, Trump, uh, the U.S. gave Saudi Arabia carte blanche to continue its war against the people of Yemen, which has also been attacked with sanctions. It's a massive humanitarian crisis now in Yemen. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, January 26th, the Biden administration laid out its Israel-Palestine policy at the UN Security Council, highlighting the importance of repairing ties with the Palestinian Authority. Now, unlike Trump, though, um, Joe Biden um, thus far seems to oppose annexation, settlement building, and demolition of Palestinian homes by Israel. Many are also saying that Biden will be more critical of uh, Israel's government and its illegal settlements, according to international law. Of course, Trump expressed overt support for this, for the settlements. Also, both the Iranian government and the Biden administration have said they wish to return to the joint comprehensive plan of action, namely the Iran nuclear deal, 
but neither party seems to be willing to take the first step. Iran has warned that the Biden administration must act soon to revive the deal and refusing to scale back nuclear development unless the U.S. first eases former Trump sanctions. And thus far, it looks as though those sanctions will not be eased. Now, um, just to remind our listeners of the uh, Biden's foreign policy team, you've got Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. Um, you have the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, uh, Homeland Security, Alejandro Miracas, uh, Avril Hines, the Director of National Intelligence, the first woman to serve in that uh, space, Linda Thomas Greenfield, a black woman who is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and John Kerry, who is a Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. So given all of that, we will start with you, uh, Laura Carlson, because uh, there are a lot of worries about whether the Biden's team, while it may put on a, a friendlier face, uh, certainly to Europe and uh, to U.S. foreign policy, that fundamentally um, many on the left, left are saying it just won't change. Your thoughts on foreign policy, Laura Carlson? Yeah, much of the left in the United States and in the rest of the world. I think so far we're seeing... Uh, the rollback of some of the most egregious elements of the Trump administration. But as we heard in that clip, the triumphant declaration that America is back actually sounds very threatening to much of the world, given the imperialist history behind it. Um, and, and in some ways doesn't sound much different from the America first. So what we're dealing with is a continuation of a patriarchal capitalist model of dominance. Um, and there's the, some of the positive aspects are to base a foreign policy on changing behaviors at home, and we'll see to what degree that's done. And of course, America's, the United States' image has been greatly eroded, and particularly as a leader of democracy with, with what we saw during this election and, and many of the measures of the Trump administration over the past four years. But essentially, is setting up uh, with this leadership rather than partnership model, you know, adversary relationships of measuring force, and particularly with China, I think uh, that it's going to be a very sticky relationship there. And while there's a commitment to more multilateralism, which is laudable, on many levels, there's still this concept that the United States will be leading, which often means imposing policies in those areas as well, even, uh, even among allies. One of the advantages is that we'll have perhaps a less erratic and uh, arm-twisting foreign policy than certainly we saw with Trump. But we're seeing a real reshuffling in a lot of areas. Uh, many of those fundamental principles of that, that model of dominance, you know, remain. We're seeing that Obama pivot to Asia coming back. There was an article today regarding Jake Sullivan's decision to uh, bolster the Asia section of National Security Council while downsizing the Middle East, which means they want to, um, well, that they're seeing China as as a threat, 
and we'll be uh, looking at it in this national security framework, whereas a framework of trade and diplomatic resolution of conflicts would be much more peaceful route to take in that sense. Um, we're concerned, too, that there are not very many progressives that made it into this foreign policy team. It's very centralist. It, there are faces that we know from the Obama administration that in Latin America led to a huge disappointment in terms of what were initially commitments to respect self-determination and mutual respect for other countries. Mentioned many times before the involvement in the coup d'etat in in Honduras and uh, and other forms of interventionism that continues. And then there's the point that you raised, Margaret, about the military and the revolving door, which are really two points. First of all, the presence of military in the foreign affairs uh, sector of this new government, starting with Lloyd Austin um, in Secretary of Defense, but then going much beyond that as well. There's a there's what Bill Hartung, a colleague of mine, has called the Pentagonization of the government in this. Then the uh, that and that's a certain kind of a logic again that reinforces that patriarchal dominance model in in foreign relations. Plus, there's the issue that Austin himself was on the Raytheon board, which sells bombs to Saudi Arabia. And even if he divests, will make huge amounts of money and continues to have interest there. But he's also on the board of Nucor, a giant steel company that's involved in conflicts with indigenous and peasant communities in Honduras, probably other parts of the world, over uh, mining in those countries that actually cause conflicts in the interest of transnational corporations. So this revolving door is creating a web of interest, or has long created a web of interest, that go way beyond Eisenhower's prescient military-industrial complex criticism and becomes this self-feeding system that grows off of public funds and bloodshed. And we're really not seeing a change in that. In Venezuela, just to give a Latin American example quickly, Anthony Blinken has already said they're going to continue the policies of the Trump administration, of uh, the sanctions that are causing immense human suffering there and haven't worked, and also recognizing Juan Guaido, who's no longer even in the National Assembly. The opposition boycotted elections to avoid displaying their weakness and division, and he now has no democratic claim to power whatsoever, and yet that policy is going to continue. And on the positive front, we are seeing a review of the Cuba policies under Trump, and I think there's a lot of momentum for finally recognizing Cuba and uh, for removing it. this absurd measure of putting it on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. And some of the other me measures that you mentioned, the freeze on arms sales to Saudi Arabia is good, but it's only temporary. We have to see what happens with that, because that that is, as, as was stated, a fundamental key to backing out of the humanitarian disaster, which is Yemen right now. The recognition of the Palestinian uh, Authority, the nuclear deal, these are all steps in the right direction that remains to be seen how they're implemented and, and how, how boldly they go forward in a direction contrary to Donald Trump, but not only that, 
but in the direction of really resolving some of these issues. Right. Thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. And of course, uh, what you say about Venezuela, you know, gives an indication uh, because the U.S. State Department announced Tuesday, January 29th, that um, that Guaido, who announced himself as president of Venezuela, never mind there was a, already a democratically elected president, um, uh, Nicolas Maduro, that um, Guaido will continue to control certain assets of uh, held by the Federal Reserve Bank in New York or any other U.S.-insured banks. Now, this is a lot of money. It's about $7 billion in assets, uh, plus over $11 billion in loss export proceeds over the next year. The Bank of England denied uh, the Venezuelan government permission to withdraw their own money, uh, more than a billion dollars worth of gold. Uh, so when we hear about austerity and, and poverty, et cetera, in Venezuela, which the mainstream media likes to play up, um, we know the role this, as well as economic sanctions slapped by the U.S. and, and Europe on Venezuela, has to play on that. Not that it's the only problem, but uh, Jackie Gold. Uh, your thoughts here on um, what the, the Biden uh, team, a foreign policy team, but also foreign policy. And there does seem to be a bit of difference between Biden and Trump uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian relations and conflict. Jackie Goldberg. Yes, that's what I was going to talk about. You know, as senator and as vice president, he was deeply engaged in shaping diplomacy and military policy across the Middle East. And I think that's important for us to remember, that he comes with a whole host of ideas and beliefs that he's held for a very long time. He's been a strong supporter of Israel. He even calls himself a Zionist. Uh, but he did tell people that he's backing a two-state solution again, which, of course, he said uh, Trump's unilateral approach has made more difficult. Uh, but he wants to keep the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, which is, I think, a problem. Um, Biden has also said that Israel must stop the settlement activity in the occupied territories. That's a big deal if he continues to keep that true. Uh, he's going to provide uh, that Israel needs to provide more aid to Gaza, uh, Palestinian leaders, he says, don't glorify violence and calls on Arab states to, you know, normalize relations with Israel. He does not support the Israeli government plan to annex the West Bank, which I think is a very big deal. He's against the BDS, which is the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that did so much good work in South Africa, uh, because he says it veers into anti-Semitism. I think that's just wrong. Uh, but that's his position, so he's not going to be a big help in in that kind of way. Um, what else? Um, I think that uh, that Trump uh, sees this all wrapped up with Iran and all of his Iranian stuff. They flew some uh, of our uh, military planes over Iran, uh, I think, either yesterday or this morning. Uh, which tells us that he's, uh, you know, going to be a threatening president uh, in that way. Um, he thinks that uh, <clears throat> troops being withdrawn from northern Syria was a betrayal of the Kurds. He's got some points that are very good, but I think if anybody expects him to be substantially different as a president, as he was as vice president, as a senator, I think they would they would be mistaken. Um, <clears throat> I also think that he will strengthen NATO. 
which is good and bad, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, he's going to, I think, uh, send a lot more uh, help uh, to uh, Ukraine. Uh, he supported weapons being sent. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say that he's going to be uh, different than Trump in that at least his uh, his decisions will be based on uh, what he believes is policy, as opposed to how he woke up that morning or who he's angry at. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see his his support of Israel to change much, and I think uh, that it will mean that we're not going to see a lot of change moving forward on the uh, ending of some of the uh, bad, bad apartheid practices of Israel toward the Palestinians. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And Dr. Gerald Horn, um, I'm sure you will have much to say on this uh, foreign policy uh, segment of the discussion. But it seems, you know, Joe Biden, President Biden makes a big deal about his anti-racist uh, policies, you know, in, in the U.S. And he knows very well it's the black vote, particularly black women, um, that um, got him elected, uh, basically, uh, pushed him over the edge there. But when it comes to racism, let's say in the Middle East, let's say in against Palestinians, uh, whom many say um, are living under apartheid, we all remember the anti-apartheid movement, which did use uh, BDS uh, to try to uh, get rid of that apartheid state. But increasingly, as Jackie said, um, if you are anti-Zionist, you're now being accused of being, um, you know, uh, uh, anti-Semite. And also there, there was a disturbing story of a group out of Baltimore, a community-based group who had their Facebook uh, shut down for basically organizing, I think, a housing protest and, and some other things. And there, there's concern that if people who are supporting BDS or use even the, the who are against uh, Zionism online, that they are under threat. That's, I, I wondered if you would comment on that, but also just the U.S. relations with Russia. And then there is the worry about China, because let's face it, China is a growing economic power. It's competing with the United States on the ground in Africa. And also, going back to the BRICS, uh, we wonder what uh, Joe Biden or his vice president, Kamala Harris, has to say about the major protests of farmers uh, happening now in India, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of them really challenging the stability of the Modi government. And Modi, of course, was a, a friend of Trump. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. The story really needs to be vetted and investigated because I read the story and there are some holes in it. But in any case, with regard to Biden's foreign policy, I think that U.S. foreign policy will be shadowed for years to come by the events of January 6th. It becomes very difficult for the United States to lecture other countries about democracy and impose sanctions on Venezuela or even Zimbabwe with regard to alleged and purported anti-democratic practices when you have the spectacle of an attempt to prevent the passing of power from one administration to the other. Then, of course, there's what we've always talked about, which is that there's a contradiction in the Biden coalition that you just made reference to, which is that the black vote on which it sits has done a masterful job in constructing a domestic anti-racist coalition, but it stops at the water's edge. But there's a reason for that. That is to say that when black Americans have sought 
to internationalize their struggle, they received severe punishment. Martin Luther King condemns the Vietnam War one year and is assassinated the next. Uh, Paul Robeson takes the United States to the United Nations on charges of genocide in 1950 and is basically driven into seclusion and near bankruptcy. And I think it's also important to point out that with regard to this new turn towards China, you're going to see an echo of that. What I mean is is that when the uh, U.N. ambassador designate, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, had her confirmation hearing, uh, she was grilled relentlessly about her supposed speech at Savannah State University, historically black college, which was in conjunction with the Confucius Institute, which is a Chinese entity, and, in fact, she may not survive the confirmation process, although we'll have to stay tuned. But speaking of China, that raises the contradiction that Utah Senator Mitt Romney raised with regard to the stimulus package. Uh, that is to say, does the United States is borrowed billions, if not trillions, from China, and then, at the same time, seeks to make China an antagonist in order to beef up the Pentagon budget, now nearing a trillion dollars. And the question is, is that policy sustainable, particularly when we see the European Union not necessarily willing to sign on at the virtual Davos summit that took place just this week. Uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany explicitly took sides with President Xi Jinping when he spoke out in favor of multilateralism and she explicitly castigated the Trump so-called America First policy, uh, which, of course, is understandable. I think that the 1% in the United States, the economic royalists, would be in favor to a degree of supporting the Biden policy, not least because, once again, the uh, black American uh, constituency is generally absent, which gives uh, Mr. Biden, more latitude and leeway in continuing uh, Trump administration policies on China and on other hotspots. But there's another issue, too, that I think we're going to have to think through very carefully. And uh, it's going to force me to cross a, a boundary of our discussion. Uh, Mr. Biden has said that climate change is going to be central to his administration. That means less of a focus with regard to fossil fuels. Does that suggest that there will be an attempt to pull away from some of these entangling alliances with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchies? Uh, does it mean that there will be less of an emphasis on regime change in Iran? You see a hint of that with regard to the staffing of Mr. Biden's National Security Council, where according to Politico, there's been a downsizing of the number of analysts with regard to the so-called Middle East and an increase exponentially of the number of analysts dealing with what they call the Indo-Pacific area, which is shorthand uh, for China. But I think it's also important to point out that this uh, emphasis on fossil fuels and climate change also has import with regard to the question of oil from Nigeria, oil from Angola, oil from Ghana, oil possibly from Guyana in South America, and what that will mean with regard to U.S. policy towards Africa and the Caribbean, those questions remain unanswered. 
Right, and thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. And uh, of course, the there is the the situation in Yemen, um, just a really tragic situation. And the United States has been fundamentally supporting uh, Saudi Arabia with their incursions uh, into uh, Yemen. And now the fighters on the ground in Yemen uh, are now being um, named uh, terrorists. So it remains to be seen how all of this is is going to go. So we're going to keep an eye, a close eye on foreign policy. It's something that people around the world really worry about because the United States is known as being the bully with a uh, military might um, to beat people down. And often there isn't that much difference between the um, Democratic uh, administrations as well as Republican administrations, although we, we are seeing a little bit, a little bit here in some regions. So thank you all very much for that. We're going to take our station break. When we return, we're going to focus on the domestic front. There's Biden's executive actions, of which there have been many, and controversy around that. There is the stimulus bill, what's going to happen with it, given um, what the blue dog Democrats are up to, and uh, McConnell really keeping the filibuster in place. And then there is the internal threat, the internal terrorist threat to the United States, not only to the population in general, but also to members of Congress. So stay with us. Um, we'll be right back with our weekly roundtable. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our community calendar, videos, and lots more stories. If you're a member of Facebook, please spread the word, like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at sotrueradio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Today in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Silver Spring, Maryland and internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Now, it's been less than 10 days since U.S. President Joe Biden uh, took office, yet he has already signed at least 35 executive orders, seven memorandums, three proclamations, this according to NBC News. Many of these executive actions are intended to undo damage done under Donald Trump while addressing ongoing crises like COVID-19 and the climate crisis. On the first day of his presidency, um, Joe Biden signed an array of executive orders around rejoining the Paris um, 
agreement on climate change, promoting racial equity, requiring mask wearing on federal property, coordinating a government-wide COVID-19 response, revising immigration and enforcement policies, incorporating undocumented immigrants into census data, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline permit, banning discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, pausing um, federal student loan payments, and many others. I mean, um, ending the ban on U.S. entry from majority Muslim countries, uh, pulling funds from Trump's border uh, walls, uh, reinstating the deferred enforced departure of uh, Liberians and strengthening um, the deferred action for childhood arrivals, uh, so-named uh, DREAMers. He also issued executive orders promoting COVID-19, safety in domestic and international travel, um, expanding access to treatment, strengthening public library, um, public health supply chain, reopening and continuing operation of schools, which he wants happening. And also on day three, he signed executive orders expanding food assistant programs, assisting veterans with debt, guaranteeing unemployment insurance, facilitating the delivery of stimulus uh, payments, empowering federal workers and, and contractors, and much more. So um, there are other executive orders, but there is a kind of growing concern coming mainly from Republicans, but uh, and and also the you know the criticism that you're better off with legislation than executive orders. But there are a few issues, critical issues that Biden is going to have to deal with. Um, first, let's hear uh, Nancy Pelosi at a press conference she gave on the latest from Congress. And then we'll have an explanation uh, from Newsy about the filibuster, because that's an important thing to consider in moving uh, Biden's agenda forward. Let's go to those clips now. President Biden, starting on day one, President Biden and Vice President Harris have driven a bold agenda for progress and for justice, issuing transformative executive actions ranging from crushing the coronavirus, equity, racial equity in so many ways, and again, addressing the climate crisis. Legislatively, those are executive orders, legislatively, we have been working, I'm very proud of our committees who are diligently working on the coronavirus release legislation as a basis for reconciliation, should that be needed. We will pass a reconciliation bill uh, under leadership in our House of John Yarmouth, Mr. Sanders in the Senate, we'll pass a reconciliation bill if we need it. We would hope that we would have bipartisan cooperation to meet the needs of the American people in terms of their health, in terms of distribution in an equitable way of the vaccine, continue with testing, tracing, treatment, et cetera, but also to meet their economic needs. So we would hope that, but we're not taking any tools off the table, should they not. While our, uh, our committees are advancing this uh, reconciliation legislation, at the same time, the executive actions continue. Today's executive action will open up the ACA's enrollment period and take additional steps to expand health care. 
we're very excited about that because, of course, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and we see this as a matter of life and death. The Senate will proceed. With the Democrats now holding the Senate majority, talk of eliminating the filibuster has ramped up. So what is a filibuster and why is the issue coming up now? A filibuster is really extended debate, uh, extended amending activity, whatever it takes to block the majority from going to a vote on whatever it is they're pursuing. Eliminating the filibuster would make it much easier for Democrats to pass President Joe Biden's biggest policy proposals. That's because current Senate rules require 60 votes to invoke what's known as cloture, a procedural step that puts a limit on debate for whatever the chamber is considering. Anytime the majority can't get 60 votes to cut off debate, we, in essence, we call that a filibuster or a threat to filibuster. Democrats eliminated the filibuster for lower court judicial nominees in 2013. Then Republicans made the same move for Supreme Court nominees in 2017. If Democrats choose to end the filibuster, experts told me it's unclear exactly how that would impact day-to-day -day business in the Senate. People disagree about what the media consequences will be, but right off the bat, conceptually, it means the majority party no longer needs to moderate their proposals to attract votes from the minority party because they will no longer need to seek 60. Certainly one downside is uh, that legislation can go through that is not well written. Um, we've seen that before uh, when bills, big bills particularly, get rammed through. Um, you know, they end up having to pass another bill to correct portions of it. Is to stand together and oppose cloture. For now, it seems like the filibuster is safe, which is something that has at least some support from both sides of the aisle. Each member of the Senate, whether they're Democrat or Republican, sees some advantage in maintaining the access to the filibuster because it allows you as an individual to just gum up the works and to hold things hostage and to ask for something in return. Stephanie Liebergen, Newsy, Washington. Okay, so Laura Carlson, there you go. And uh, for our listeners in particular, an explanation there of the filibuster. But on Thursday, January 28th, uh, Nancy Pelosi said the House uh, will vote on the budget next week. Right. And uh, that could set up a fast track process to pass parts of uh, Joe Biden's one point nine trillion dollar stimulus plan with just 50 Democratic votes in the Senate. And apparently House Democrats are getting ready for the potential use of reconciliation if they're unable to get bipartisan support uh, for Biden's COVID-19 economic rescue package. And the reconciliation process requires the House and Senate budget committees to first pass a budget with specific instructions to House Ways and Means and Senate Finance Committees to write a COVID-19 relief bill. And from there, the Senate would then have to pass that budget with 51 votes. So, uh, you know, a lot of concern. Some people are, are saying um, they're going to have to break up um, Biden's uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. And then there's a lot of uh, angst about what if they break it up what will make it what won't will the rest of it just get dropped and then the concern about the use of the filibuster so laura carlson you weighing in on on all of this because perhaps that's why biden is doing so many executive orders out of concern that his policy agenda um will be held up in congress laura carlson 
Yeah, undoubtedly. Starting with the filibuster, I think, you know, the defense of the filibuster in saying that it, it led to better legislation because it requires a process of negotiation between majority and and minority uh, factions within the legislature assumes that they're capable of that kind of dialogue. And I don't think that there is any evidence whatsoever in this government, with the polarization that exists, that they are capable of a dialogue, of working together to create uh, better legislation for the U.S. people. So the, the, uh, the idea that Joe Biden espouses anyway of, of creating bipartisan support is, is a chimera. There really is not going to be bipartisan support because the, the fundamental position of the Republican Party is obstructionist. And the filibuster has always been a tool for obstruction. It's, it has no real democratic uh, use. And it has been used on both sides of the aisle. It has been perhaps useful for specific uh, points in the past. And on a progressive agenda, but it still overall has no reason to, to exist. So if they go through and they say, look, we're not going to get this bipartisan support, we're going to have to go through this reconciliation process, I think that they should use the pragmatic tools and that there should eventually be a serious movement to eliminate the filibuster. As to the executive orders, I think that was a very comprehensive list. And we can see that um, there's a lot of really people-oriented measures on the list of executive orders. It's clear that Biden is, is doing these executive orders because, first of all, he has to undo what Trump did. Trump governed by executive orders on major issues, including even financing, like diverting Pentagon budget to the wall and and proclamations that came directly out of the executive branch. So on the one hand, there's a, a concentration of power if you govern through executive orders that can be seen as presidential, as it can be seen as dangerous for democracy. And I think that Biden will have to kind of level this out. But on the other hand, there was a necessity to really undo a lot of the damage that Trump did and to do it rapidly. This is also really very important for marking publicly a new course by putting forth these expressing values of a new government in this in this series of executive orders. He's obviously marking a distance and and a change from the Trump administration. But it's not a substitute for legislation because the legislation creates a more lasting governing infrastructure and also funding mechanisms. A lot of these executive orders re will require a great deal of funding and infrastructure to be carried out, uh, and that will have to be uh, go through the budget processes in Congress. So it's a really weak instrument for anything approaching structural change. And as we've seen in this political, economic, and health crisis, structural change is exactly what's needed. Having said that, there's some very far-reaching executive orders we talked about last time and that you mentioned in the list. One of the ones I would point out, too, is what's contained in the executive order on tackling the climate crisis. Here, there was a very clear need to differentiate from Trump policy of climate denial, 
And so there's a long series of measures that put climate at the center of, of most areas of government, including foreign and national security policy, hosting a climate, a leader's climate summit, a special envoy, the Paris Agreement, climate finance. Um, having climate be at the center of participation in international financial institutions, uh, attending to the crisis in the Amazon, integrating climate in international work, and in the Department of Defense, risk analysis. Now, there's a long series of, of measures there that will make a big difference in terms of the government's attention to that. Some are more limited. The racial equity executive orders for example, they phase out the Department of Justice contract with private prisons, but that's a very small percentage, and they excluded Homeland Security and immigration detention, uh, detention centers altogether. And even the immigration ones will really depend on implementation to guarantee the right to asylum and to change back uh, and to change a lot of the policies, anti-immigrant policies, and they'll also depend I'm going back to Congress for that legislation. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And and Jackie Goldberg, actually just some breaking news here, apparently, uh, just uh, a little while ago, uh, President Biden has said he's going to wind down executive actions uh, this coming week uh, to focus on COVID uh, relief. Um, But as you know, he's done quite a lot of them from ending reliance on private prisons, reaffirming commitment to tribal sovereignty, reestablishing the Presidential Council on Science and Technology, reinforcing Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. But um, yeah, Jackie Goldberg, you've also served in government. So this thing about uh, the use of the filibuster to really stop things from happening and the, the challenge that Democrats are now facing to try to move this agenda forward. Your thoughts, Jackie Goldberg? Well, I, I, don't, think the, I don't think Biden has uh, all the blue dog Democrats supporting ending the uh, filibuster. That's why they aren't doing it. Uh, I suspect that what uh, uh, the Biden administration will do is to begin to put forth real legislation that will deal with some of these issues, give the Republicans some time to say whether they're playing or not playing. We all know they're not playing. And then I believe he will use a, a lot of different types of ways, to, including uh, a limited ending of the filibuster. You know, the, uh, the Republicans ended the filibuster on Supreme Court justices. So it isn't all or nothing is what I'm trying to say. And I believe that uh, they will be able to move the blue dogs to uh, end the filibuster on those things which uh, are very important to them. So what's important to the blue dogs? Well, the blue dogs are those people who are worried about fiscal responsibility, but they're also worried about partisanship. And I think one of the things the blue dogs pushed all through their time was uh, a, a change in redistricting, of making redistricting nonpartisan. Um, and I think they're going to still continue on that. And I think because of that, they still have a meaningful role in the legislature. The problem is is that when uh, Pelosi needs them to be with her, she needs to find ways to get them to be with her. Um, I do think they will use uh, partial ends of filibusters when they get stuck. 
But they got a big break in having two ways of using reconciliation. Usually you can only use reconciliation once a year, but none was used in 2020. So the uh, Democrats have two reconciliation bills they can do. I think they will use one for the COVID uh, uh, next relief bill, and I think they'll use one on his jobs and, and um, climate change packages. Uh, that means that they have real opportunity to press both the Blue Dogs and the Republicans uh, to coming in line and voting on these things because they have the in their pocket the ability to move two big spending bills, one around jobs and the, and the economy and, 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 and the uh, uh, environment, and one on uh, COVID relief. So I, I think that they're going to uh, say he's going to continue to call for unity, Biden is. He's going to continue to reach across the aisle. But I think he knows full well he's not a stupid man, to say the very least. He knows full well this ain't happening, and they, I believe, are preventing, are, are preparing two reconciliation bills that will move things forward very quickly. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And Dr. Gerald Horn, um, you may want to comment, of course, on this, but also Nancy Pelosi is talking about the enemy within and that more security needed for members of Congress, uh, several of whom um, have, you know, been threatened um, and their families uh, threatened as well. And then the unusual thing that happened of the U.S. issuing a warning to all across the United States about the possibility of internal terrorist attacks. Now, Dr. Horn, you and I know that for people of African descent in the U.S., indigenous people, um, Latinx people, I mean, other people of color, we have long known and experienced the terror of the threat within. And it seems as though somehow the penny is now dropping with uh, those in Washington, D.C. Your thoughts on all of this, uh, just wrapping up our show today, Dr. Horn. Well, to your latter point, it seems to me historically inevitable that the kind of mob rule that oftentimes governed life in black and indigenous and people of color communities would begin to spread like an oil spot after desegregation, that the mobs would then turn their ire upon the institutions like Congress, which were perceived as responsible for desegregation. Uh, You can also see the problem in in so far as I think that this Department of Homeland Security warning that you just mentioned might be too little too late. Uh, I think the United States may be on the verge of a kind of internal violence that it has not seen since the days of Reconstruction post-1865. And one of the reasons you might recall is this Department of Homeland Security report of about a decade ago that tried to point to this problem and tried to focus particularly on returning veterans as recruitment target for the ultra-right Uh, But there was an outcry from the Republican Party, from Fox News, from Rush Limbaugh, and the report was deep-sixed, and so now we see January 6th as a direct result. And then there's the structural problem. That is to say, as I've just suggested, the GOP does not shun those to their right. In fact, they welcome them into their electoral coalition. But if you look at the Democratic Party and MSNBC, for example, They oftentimes ignore or undermine those to their left, which therefore distorts the political discourse and helps to create the 
violence that we're now about to experience, I'm afraid. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez suggested that this year's GOP caucus, this term's GOP caucus, is to the right of last term's GOP caucus, and presumably she was referring to the white supremacists, to the QAnon forces like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has denied the school shootings and ironically has just been appointed to the Education Committee uh, of the House. And I think there's a justification for Nancy Pelosi speaking of the enemy within, because you've had right-wing congresspersons trying to smuggle guns onto the floor of the House for what reason is unclear. And with regard to the filibuster, I think we need to underscore is Jim Crow roots, particularly in 1957 when Dixiecrat J. Strom Thurmond of the U.S. Senate took the floor and held the floor for 24 hours, which was an exercise in bladder control, if nothing else, in order to deep-six a civil rights bill. And we would be remiss if we failed to ignore that. However, I do think that if ditching the filibuster could lead to Washington, D.C. becoming a state, which is on the Democratic Party agenda, it could be worthwhile because that would add two U.S. senators to the anti-GOP coalition, uh, which in some ways would be worth whatever price uh, that would have to be paid. And on the executive orders, I think we should not ignore the Biden executive order basically curtailing the selling selling of uh, so-called excess uh, Pentagon military material, such as tanks and bazookas, to the 18,000-strong police departments, the attempt to curtail the use of private prisons, which are an essential component of the prison industrial complex, and the racial equity audit, which is under the administration of Susan Rice, the domestic uh, council uh, chief at the White House, potentially uh, could be significant because it could lead the way for more anti-racist measures pursued by the United States government, not to mention more affirmative action. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. Uh, another fascinating roundtable, I'm afraid. We are out of time. I'd like to thank our panelists, and I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, audio engineer Kiana Williams, assistant producer Romero Funes. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. If you like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Thank you for listening. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend, and y'all, please remember to stay safe, y'all. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.